really interested in kind of building those bridges between universities and correctional settings because many incarcerated people are going to be released. And what opportunities are there for them to continue their education or begin their education if they didn't have the opportunity to take classes while incarcerated? Welcome to the Student Affairs Spectacular, the weekly podcast giving you a front row seat to the greatest student affairs show on earth. And now your ringmasters, Tom Kriegelstein and Dustin Ramsdell. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Student Affairs Spectacular podcast. My name is Tom and a fun fact you don't know about me is that I was born on a farm in Michigan to a midwife and it was illegal at the time to pay midwives with currency so my parents actually traded a half a pig for my birth. But that's not what we're talking about today because today I had the opportunity to have an interview with Michael Brick who is the Director of Student Services at the University of Maryland. And why he's on the podcast is because his doctoral program and the work he does outside the institution is fascinating. Michael actually goes into correctional facilities and he's trying to bridge the gap between student services and student affairs and correctional facilities. And that's his entire doctoral program. So he talks about first why he chose to get into it. Uh, he chose. He talks about the current situation and how unfortunately dismal it is around most of the country, except for a few states that are doing it really well. Uh, he talks about how there, are, what programs out there exist that work really well and are trying to bridge this gap that he's connected to. And those are in the show notes as well. And then he talked about what it's like to teach in a correctional facility. And if you are a grad student or a student affairs professional, and this is a topic that's that's popular or in your mind, uh, this is a great podcast. But also, if you're not interested in going to work in correctional facilities, he talks about the fact of how more and more incarcerated folks are coming out of the 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 correctional facilities and are ending up in our offices at universities. And just like veterans, just like not uh, uh, returning students, or uh, or the the eighteen year old who's coming in, or the single uh, parent, we all have to figure out ways to engage and connect with those people. And this is yet another population that's showing up at our doorstep that we should know something about. So hopefully, this is an eye opening, enlightening conversation that I had with Michael that you can learn from. All right, Michael, I'm so glad that you joined us on the Student Affairs Spectacular podcast. Welcome from wherever you're calling at in the world right now. Thank you, thank you. And where is that? Where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from College Park, Maryland. Yeah. Home of the University of Maryland. Home of the University of Maryland. <laughs> what, I always like to ask, because obviously we talk with people in all different institutions, what's one thing about Maryland that's, that is a, like a fun fact that would surprise most people? One of my favorite fun facts, about the University of Maryland, besides the fact that our mascot is a, is a terrible, it's like a tiny little um, turtle, is that Jim Henson is an alum of Maryland, and there are statues of Kermit the Frog all over campus to kind of commemorate him as an alum. That's so, man, that's great. Jim, <laughs> Jim Henson's one of my favorites. Yes, absolutely. Do, do you remember when he passed, do you remember like the ceremony that the Muppets had for him when he passed away or Sesame Street? I did, and it was really sad, but like very moving. Yeah. Um, you humanize those Muppets so much. I know, I know. It's amazing. It's amazing. Um, yeah, and, and uh, I, I, I like in terms of an idol. I've always appreciated Jim Henson because he worked really hard, but he also seemed like he had a really big heart. So, yeah. um, 
Well, that's interesting. Good, but that's not what we're talking about today. <laughs> we're <laughs> we're trying to learn uh, more. You have you have this really interesting doctoral program you're working on right now that's leading into a career. But before we get into that, um, can you just share with the world who you are uh, besides someone from Maryland? Sure. Um, so my name is Michael Scott Brick. I've had to add the the middle name as a as a doctoral student because they want you to be even more professional. I think um, and. Um, I, I got into student affairs as a student, um, like I think so many of us have. Um, I worked in orientation, I was an orientation leader, then an orientation captain, I was a tour guide, um, I worked in a bunch of different offices at my undergraduate institution and um, fell in love with college and just the college experience. And so um, when I graduated, I started working in admissions actually, um, was my original intro and then morphed into half admissions, half student affairs, and now fully in student services um, as the director of student services for the School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation here at the University of Maryland. So Michael, I get to just, oversee... Sorry, jumping in really quickly. Um, yeah. On the... Because we're now batting 100% on everyone who's been on the podcast this season has been super involved as an undergraduate <laughs> um, and led into the career. I'm just curious, before you go on with the story... Was there a specific moment? Did an, a student affairs professional say something to you about that idea as a, there's a career in this, or did you seek it out, you know, knowing I, that you could actually have a career in this space? I um, I think admissions is really what actually drew me to this field. Um, I was very involved as a tour guide, and I ended up being like the head supervisor of the tour guides when I was a junior in college. And I got to work really closely with the admissions counselors, I'm in a really phenomenal office, and the admissions counselors, I think, really fostered this, hey, you could make a career out of this, and um, I got to see what they do, they got to travel, they got to work with students and their families, and it, it seemed really glamorous um, at the time, which <laughs> it is to an extent, <laughs> and and I think that's really what got me, got me into this field, was my experience with those admissions counselors and seeing how much fun they seem to have in their jobs. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Continue on then with the journey. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I've been at the University of Maryland um, for a couple of years now, um, and I, I get to kind of oversee a lot of different things from academic advising to um, support services, student affairs, career services, um, admissions to an extent. And so it's been really nice to kind of get my hands in all of those different facets of student affairs as a whole, and then began a um, PhD program in student affairs this past year. Um, at let, the me, University of let me ask, why did you choose to go on to a PhD program? Um, I go back and forth on this question. I think <laughs> a lot. Um, you know, part out of necessity, um, I started to see the people in this industry that I really looked up to and I really um, wanted to model, you know, similar careers after them. And many of them had some form of, of doctoral program, whether an EDD or a PhD. And um, I also am fortunate to work at an institution that has a really phenomenal student affairs program, both at the master's and doctoral level. And so the faculty in that program, who I got to know just as a student affairs professional here on campus, um, really encouraged me to, to kind of pursue it. And so um, right place, right time, um, right interest. Um, and then the research that I'm interested in doing seems topical and appropriate now. And so it was really kind of now or never, let's, let's, um, dive into this. Okay. Okay. Got it. And you have, you are doing a really interesting career, uh, uh, doctoral program. So first 
set us up with what it is and why you chose that, and then we're going to dig into it. Yeah. So, um, well, my specific research questions are not, you know, as defined as they probably should be as a doctoral student. Um, I'm really interested in looking at um, higher education programming in correctional facilities, um, and also really looking at how we develop students. Um, all-encompassing students in uh, correctional settings, so in jails and in prisons. Wow. And why that, though? Like, why, why was that an interest to you? So, um, you know, so student affairs professionals, we've all got our side hustles. Right. Pretty common across the board. Um, my side hustles have always been um, social justice-oriented and community engagement-oriented, and so I've worked ever since I was an undergraduate student, you know, through my professional career in a variety of nonprofit and community organizations that do work with highly criminalized populations. And so I've worked with um, LGBTQ youth of color, I've worked with injection drug users, I've worked with sex workers, um, I've worked with um, homeless individuals, you know, I've worked with in, in a variety of different cities. And these are all really highly criminalized populations. And it's led me to work in correctional settings and criminal justice reform. And one of the areas that I think is so lacking in the criminal justice world is education. Um, and so I started to merge my two interests, criminal justice reform and education, really interested in higher education. And so I started to see where these two worlds could overlap. And it turned out to be this. Wow. And was there a personal interest, like family or anything, or is it just just more of a, an a, a academic interest? You know, I, no, I mean, it wasn't a personal interest. Um, you know, growing up, I, I had no connection to a, a correctional facility or anyone who had been in uh, inside a correctional facility. And so um, it really became, as I started to get to know these people that I was working with um, through these like nonprofit and community organizations, it becomes personal. Um, you hear stories and, and you hear narratives and you get to talk to people about their lives and their ambitions. And there are individuals who are incarcerated who so deeply want an education, more so than many students I've encountered in traditional educational settings. And it's made me want to give them a voice and it's made me want to work on developing programming and opportunities for these people. Yeah. And you got into this space and what did you discover? Like what, what is it like? What is the current situation at uh, correctional facilities? Yeah. So um, I'm actually teaching in a, in a correctional facility right now. Um, I teach once a week there and um, I have 26 students, ages 18 to 50. Um, is my oldest. And so you're looking at a really non-traditional classroom environment in both space and you know demographic um yeah what are you what are you teaching so i'm actually teaching introduction to architecture um in this in this facility through my work in the school of architecture planning and preservation and so it's been really exciting to teach a design course to um folks inside and are you so you are going you're going to the correctional facility and and i suspect going through the security and you're going into does it look like a classroom um yeah, I mean, it looks like a, a pretty dated, um, you know, maybe 1960s to 70s classroom. Yeah, okay. no technology, um, you know, limited in terms of what materials we can bring in and out. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, chairs and a, and a whiteboard. I do, and why are these students choosing to go to, are these students, these, these uh, uh, is inmates the okay correct term? I'm not sure. You know, I 
try not to use the term inmate. I just because I think it is highly stigmatized. Right. Um, what I what I typically try to use is incarcerated person or okay. you know formerly incarcerated adults um, if someone's been released. Um, colloquially, you know, there's plenty of people who use a variety of different terms, but yeah, you'll probably hear me refer to them as I'm um, incarcerated folks, which is kind of what I use okay. um, so, as, a, as a group. Yeah, so these incarcerated folks, why are they choosing to do an architectural class? Yeah. It just um, seems so, it seems so um, not direct career specific yeah. training. So yeah, I mean, and again, one of the things, you know, there are programming in correctional facilities, there's GED programming, and then there's these really kind of highly specialized technical trades or certificate programs. And so um, when I thought about, is there like a liberal arts course that I'd like to teach, you know, in this facility, um, architecture came to mind. And fortunately, many of the students I have in that class have a history in construction. Many of them worked in construction. I have two licensed electricians. I've got a licensed plumber in that group as well. And so it actually, there was a lot of interest, I think, purely because of that, because many of them had worked with architects um, before they were incarcerated. And so um, it also gave us, you know, there's, there's power in architecture. It's something I talk about in my class. And a prison is a pretty symbolic structure. And so they're almost in this facility that is a really interesting living laboratory of some of the concepts that we're talking about when we talk about architecture. Yeah. And what is this? Okay. So that the current situation is there is training going on. You're a teacher. Is this employed by the correctional facility or through the university? So this is, um, there's a variety of different structures kind of nationwide, but, um, the, the program that I'm teaching through is, um, a scholars program. So it's actually not credit bearing. Um, it's really just for their own education. Um, and you know, gives them something to do, gives them some more knowledge. Um, and it's hosted through the university of Baltimore actually, um, in conjunction with a credit bearing program, um, that they run as well. Gotcha. And how did you find out about this, this job? Yeah. So there's a really small little network of, um, scholars working on, um, prison education work. Um, and I'm part of several kind of listservs and, um, there's, we actually have a conference, a national conference on higher education in prisons every year. Um, and so one of the, the people involved runs the program through the university of Baltimore. And as I was looking for some opportunities in the state of Maryland, you know, um, we had met a few times. And so I asked if there was an opportunity for me to come and teach. Yeah. Teach within it. What's the name of the, the conference? Do you know? Yeah, so it's NCHEP. It's the National Conference of Higher Education in Prisons. Uh, and, so can you say that? Spell that? NCHEP. N-C-H-E-P. C-H-E-P. Got it. And just so everyone's listening, we'll put that in the show notes. Don't try and take notes while you're driving or, or on a treadmill. doesn't work. Never works. Uh, okay, so you are – how far into this doctoral program are you? I'm about to finish my first year. Okay, got it. And – what, what, uh, what's your hope? Like what, what's the intent? What a great question. Um, I feel like <laughs> if you ask any doctoral student in student affairs, they'll, that answer will change day to day. Um, <laughs> you know, I see myself again, like so many student affairs professionals, I see myself kind of living in three worlds and hopefully they all come together. Um, I love being a practitioner of student affairs, working with students, um, I am interested in teaching, you know, I, I enjoy that. Um, and then I'm really interested in policy. 
And so ideally I'd find an opportunity, you know, once I complete the degree to really work in all three, teach some courses, be a practitioner, a dean, uh, you know, a, a VP or a VP, and then really work on some policy issues around um, these topics that I'm interested in. Yeah, and just out of curiosity then, would you stay at the university or would you want to go, would you figure out a way to go full-time into a correctional facility or maybe work with the, is it NCHEP mm -hmm. on the national level? Yeah, um, I, I think a, a combination of all of the above. Yeah. Um, we did just establish a kind of governing organization for higher education programs in prison um, through NCHEP. And so we're going to start to see a lot more collaboration, I think, between programs nationwide. But um, I would, I, I'm really interested in this partnership between universities and correctional institutions. Um, they, they exist in, in a variety of different forms, you know, around the world, really. But um, I'm really interested in kind of building those bridges between universities and correctional settings because many incarcerated people are going to be released. And what opportunities are there for them to continue their education or begin their education if they didn't have the opportunity to take classes while incarcerated? And I think the relationship that correctional institutions can build with universities and vice versa becomes really, really important when we want to support those students. Yeah, yeah. And what universities right now do you see that have a strong model of success around this? So, I mean, University of Baltimore is definitely one that comes to mind. Um, they're, they're new, but right. they're really doing some phenomenal work. Um, and then California, pretty much every institution in the state of California is really, they're really at the forefront of this um, type of work, um, really from even the 1970s onward. There have been multiple institutions in California that have been working on building these relationships, and one of the most well-known ones and really one of the most successful ones is called the Prison University Project. Um, which is a phenomenal resource for anyone who's interested in looking at these things. They do a lot of research. Um, and then there's also the Vera Institute, which um, is a pretty you know, well-known uh, research institute, and they also do a lot of research on these things as well. You said that was the Vera Institute? The Vera, V-E-R-A, the Vera Institute based in New York. Vera Institute, got it. All right, got it. Um, if, you were, if you had the opportunity... Um, to go and present on this topic in front of a grad class. So these people haven't yet necessarily started their full-time careers in student affairs, but they're about to. Um, and they ask you to come in and give a lecture. What would be your sort of two or three things that you wish every essay grad would know as they're entering in the field around this topic? You know, I think the, the main one for me is to reserve judgment. Um, there is a lot of stigma attached to incarceration, to any criminal justice process. Um, and these individuals, these students are facing that stigma at a very intense level. Um, and I believe that if we, again, withheld some judgment and really got to know these students for who they are, we'd be, I think society in general would be much more willing to help them. Um, but then I also think student affairs professionals do such a good job of understanding barriers the barriers to any group of people, populations that um, they may face going into higher education. And I spend a lot of time educating people on the types of barriers that um, 
incarcerated students or formerly incarcerated students um, are going to face when they try to go for higher education. Um, and there's a lot of them. And so the ability to kind of learn some of those yeah. is, is really, really important when you start to work with these students. And the reality is there are students on pretty much any university campus that potentially have been in prison or know someone who's been in prison, who have a parent who's incarcerated, and they're facing these similar barriers. Yeah, yeah. I, it's, uh, it certainly reminds me of this, the expanding role of a student affairs professional uh, where, where counseling is becoming a bigger part of it and just like having the conversations with students around various services that are available and so having to be aware of all of them. And one of them is, is these, yeah, these prisoners are these uh, incarcerated folks. I'm, yep. I'm going to get the language. Yep. Yeah. These incarcerated <laughs> folks who are, who are entering back into the, to the public life and trying to get their lives turned around. And education is certainly one of those ways. And they show up in your office and there you are. And how much do you know about their, their path versus the, uh, a student who went from high school to college or the student yeah. who, who went from high school to a career and then came back to college. Like there's so many paths that end up with getting a student going, ending up in your office. Um, and they could be any age and they could be any demographic and, and yet somehow the student affairs professionals has to have some sort of knowledge of all of it, which is just really tough. Yeah. <laughs> it's not easy. Yeah. It's a lot to learn. Yeah. And this is certainly, I, I know veterans is a hot topic right now, um, servicing veterans who are coming back to campuses, but I have not heard nearly as much around this topic of incarcerated folks coming back to campus and, yeah. and services for them. Yeah, and the, the reality is it, it, incarcerated populations encompass all of those other populations. I have yeah. three veterans in my course right now. I've got first-generation students. I've got um, students with kids. You know, we've got um, non-traditional age groups, um, students uh, without documentation. There's a handful of all these populations that fall within that incarceration setting. And so here's this population that we're, many of these populations that we're trying to serve that make up this other population that doesn't seem to be getting as much attention. Yeah. And I, I, I suspect and, and love to hear your thoughts on this, that there's a veterans club, there's a non-traditional club, there's a club for everything, but there's not a incarcerated folks club because there's probably a stigma around it. Yeah, I have not seen an incarcerated um, folks club. Um, you know, there's there's definitely community organizations that are doing that type of work and connecting those resources, yeah. but um, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a group like that on a traditional college campus. Yeah, yeah I, it'd be really interesting because certainly... It, it would help from a support standpoint mm -hmm. of what it, how do I navigate this? Um, and someone who's a year or two ahead of you in the process would be a huge help for that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. If you are listening and you do happen to have a club like this on your campus, can you just let us know and we'll put it in the show notes. That'd be great. So we have some models of success out there. Absolutely. Uh, question uh, for you, uh, Michael, on... Uh, is there a difference? Do you notice a difference between for-profit prisons and non-profit prisons uh, in terms of their support around this kind of stuff? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not that that's they a hot are. topic at all. At all. Yeah, right. No one's talking about that. <laughs> no, um, no one. It's it, there's there's quite a difference. You know, um, state and federal regulations 
um, require some educational programming in their um, facilities. Now, typically it's at the K through 12 level, so require GED programming, but um, many of the state and federal institutions have built these relationships, right, with nonprofit universities, and so there is some type of higher education programming. Um, For-profit institutions aren't regulated like that, and so they don't need to offer those things, and they probably won't. And when you then start to connect, let's say, a nonprofit university with a for-profit prison, that's a difficult relationship to manage. Um, as we've seen, you know, several nonprofit institutions partner with for-profit institutions and kind of see what happens there. Um, I don't know if those relationships are as manageable. Um, and so I don't expect to see too much higher education programming um, or partnerships in for-profit prisons. Yeah, yeah. What prisons across the country do, do you see doing really great programming for rehabilitation into the general public? So um, California, again, serves as a really phenomenal example for a lot of this. Um, San Quentin, which is where the Prison University Project got started, um, has continually, again, for decades at this point, been doing this type of work. Um, and then we are starting to see, you know, um, some of the New York schools as well. Um, there's a phenomenal prison program through BARD, um, the Hudson Link for Higher Education in Prisons is another nonprofit organization that connects some of these resources. And um, we've seen some um, New York prisons step this up as well. You know, prisons in general, you know, correctional settings in general are going through changes right now with a, with a change in government. Um, we're seeing Rikers in New York City in the news quite a bit lately. Um, and so as these correctional settings change, it comes to no surprise that the educational programming will be changing as well. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and then ultimately, if, if, you, if you got to be in charge of overseeing all of the, the U.S. correctional facilities, no, no pressure, <laughs> <laughs> what would be your first, like, what would be the first thing you'd want to really adjust and, and focus on as a, as leaving your mark and making the prisons more effective and I mean there's a lot <laughs> yeah, I know that's a tough that's a, such a that's big a, question it's a big one um you know I, I mean there, there's a handful of things you know I would love to see stronger mental health support in in correctional settings I'd love to see better medical care and I'd like to see the entire system as a whole kind of change but in terms of education you know I, I do want to see some regulation, some mandate that some form of higher education is required in at least all state facilities. Um, we as a society have moved to requiring college degrees. I mean, that's really where we're at, right? In most job settings, a college degree is required. And so how can we expect this massive, and again, the United States incarcerates more people than any other country in the world. How can we expect this massive population to, to join society once again and contribute in the same ways if they don't have access to the same opportunities. And since a, a college degree has become so important in the United States, it makes sense that we provide the same opportunities for this group. And so I'd like to see that required is that each state institution has some connection, offers some programming, whether it be one course, a full degree, training, um, guaranteed admissions, articulation agreements, all of these things that it's required at the state level. Yeah. 
It's funny because a lot of what you just said, uh, it's, it's some of the, it, it sounds so similar. Like there's a parallel between higher education reform and and and, and uh, prison reform, um, because minus the 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 actual criminal act, uh, a lot of the people are they're just well, I won't say all of them. That's a big generalization, but uh, I was trying to get to a spot where. In both cases, you're just trying to to make better citizens uh, mm-hmm. of the world, and the way they got to where they're at is a different path. But um, ultimately, the the way forward yeah. is really make them better citizens, and education does that in a lot of ways. And I will say, you know, the incarcerated students that I have met, and I've met many of them, um, they have a love and a passion for education that is. Um, remarkable and admirable and can serve as a model for students who maybe haven't gone through something like that. Um, That if someone can go through something as traumatizing as a prison setting, and it it really is a traumatizing place, for them to still be so dedicated to their education, it speaks uh, worlds for someone maybe younger who can say, I can get through this as well, and I can do that. Yeah, yeah. It would be, yeah, there, I, there's just, it would be really interesting. Are there any resources like podcasts or blogs or websites that if I'm a student affairs person, I want to just learn more about this that I could go to? Yes, um, there are um, several. Um, okay. Do you want to just send over a list? Sure, and yeah, I will send over a list. Okay. Um, and I also keep keep a website of a lot of these resources and oh, try perfect. to connect people to some of these things so I can certainly send you some of those links and you can link them to the podcast as well. Yeah, uh, all that will be in the show notes, so definitely send that over. That would be great. Okay. All right, um, uh, Michael, we are at the end of our time together, and I know this topic, there's a lot here. Uh, however, we, we try and keep it under a half an hour as best we can because it's yeah. t- typically people's commute. You know? yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the goal. Uh, and before we go, I, I like to do a rapid-fire uh, round where totally unrelated, mostly unrelated to your career, but it's just a, a way for us to get to know you better um, as, as a human outside of your job. Sound good? Yep. All right. Try not to overthink them. Okay. Uh, uh, let's see. I'm, I'm trying to do the first one here. What's something uh, that you can brag about? I used to be a competitive tap dancer. What? Very, very proud of that. That's that? amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. I love hidden talents. Uh, what one liberty should be granted to everyone? I'm a firm believer that education is a right, not a privilege. Yeah, good one. Uh, what is the worst place to be stuck waiting? The New York City subway on, like, a really hot summer day. Oh, the worst. Yeah. The worst. Yeah. Just watching people's, especially <laughs> the people, the Wall Street people who have their oh. suits on, and they're just drenched in the back. It's, oh, yeah. If no one's ever experienced it, it's 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 its own, it's its own special thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, what have, uh, let's see, what have you tried in life and then decide you're particularly not good at? Like a skill or a talent, or you tried something, you're like, mm, that's not quite my talent. So many things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really terrible um, at like musical instruments, I've decided. So just really bad. I've tried piano and violin and clarinet huh. and just bad at all of 
them. It's interesting. You'd think tap would sort of just naturally move over to another type of art with rhythm, but... No. Okay. Uh, what's, what would be a once-in-a-lifetime experience that you'd love to experience? I'd love to go cave diving. Mm, yeah. Like diving in a water in cave or spelunking yeah. where you're like crawling through the cave? I think like a mixture of both, right? Where there's like water and you kind of dive into it, but then you kind of emerge into some underground cavern thing. There is, as a side note, there is in the Yukon Peninsula a, a cave river that on the top part is fresh water. And then there's a layer of some, it's some, some substance. I forget what it is. But then underneath that substance is a wholly, totally different uh, uh, ecosystem because it's saltwater river. That's phenomenal. That sounds so cool. <laughs> and, and there's divers that they had video of it, and it looks as if they're diving into because uh, the, the both the waters are super clear, and so it looks like they're they're essentially diving into the ground, and they go through this murkiness, and they come out, and they're in another ecosystem. It's so wild. It's that so sounds wild. amazing. Yeah. It sounds so cool. All right, uh, what character on television do you most identify with? Not on television anymore, but I was definitely a Jim from The Office for a while. Ah, oh, so good. I think everyone identify if because I and that question because <laughs> no one wants to be anyone else in The Office, yeah. right? Yeah. No one it's else is Jim. like yeah. No one else is like oh, I am I am totally Dwight. <laughs> my name my name is Michael Scott Brick, and so Michael oh. Scott would make total sense. Yeah. Oh yes. <laughs> uh, what's the most common compliment people give you? So I am fully covered in tattoos, um, things Whoa. people don't know about me. Whoa. So um, I get a lot of compliments on my tattoos, which is really, really nice to hear. That's amazing. Uh, who is it? Uh, Craig Biederman out of UMass Boston uh, is a student affairs professional, yep. and he's got lots of tattoos. And yep. Okay, <laughs> you know, you got it. He writes a cool, yeah, he writes a cool blog, yeah. Okay, <laughs> covered. Uh, if you were the personal assistant to one celebrity, who would you choose? Tina Fey. Ah, oh, good one. Yeah. What do you find yourself wasting your time doing the most? Oh, um, Netflix. Netflix, anything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what paid job doesn't seem like it's actually work? People are going to hate me for this one, but I do really enjoy teaching. And while it's yeah. definitely has its ups and downs, like teaching in a classroom and really connecting with students is, is a, just a phenomenal way to spend my time. Yeah. Yeah. Those of you who are setting policy around the funding of teachers, don't take that as a reason <laughs> to not give them the pay they deserve because exactly. teachers work their tail off. My parents are both teachers and it was hard work. It is hard work, yeah. Uh, especially done right. I guess there's two types yeah. of teachers. There's there's yeah. there's ones who care and the ones who don't. And if you care, it's a, it's a whole nother level of work. Uh, all right, last question, Michael Scott. <laughs> uh, what what chocolate bar is your go-to, or candy bar, what's your go-to candy bar in a candy shop? Anyone who knows me knows this one, and it's Kit Kat. <laughs> do you share it, or do you eat the whole thing? Oh, God, no, no, I eat the entire thing. <laughs> Uh, that's great. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the podcast again and sharing uh, what is what is an eye-opening, and I know a lot of people are going to learn a lot from this uh, topic because it's not something that's talked about a lot, and nor have I ever heard it before. So I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Definitely. Take care. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you want to help us out, leave us a review and rating on Stitcher or iTunes, or just share out the show so other people can find all the cool stuff we talk about every single week. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Student Affairs Spectacular Podcast.